This is John DeFalb from John Sandow's Bookshop in London, and I'm honoured to have with me today, sitting upstairs in the shop, after hours, not on Zoom for a change, Christopher de Hamel. After working for Sotheby's for 25 years, he became librarian of the Parker Library in Cambridge and other things. It is said that he has seen and catalogued more illuminated manuscripts than anyone alive, and perhaps we shall find out from him in due course whether he reckons anyone dead ever handled more than he has. Many of you will recall his 2016 bestseller, Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts, a book that was itself remarkable in so many ways, for its erudition and wit, for its splendid production, and for its startling success in bringing what appears such an abstruse subject to a wide public. Six years later, he has written a new book that is almost as big, and also splendidly produced with abundant fine illustrations. Ostensibly, it concerns the same subject, but the angle is quite different. Instead of focusing on the manuscripts, he has imagined a club in which twelve passionate enthusiasts for the form over a thousand years have gathered to share stories. So, Christopher, welcome. Now, your apostles are drawn from each from a different area of engagement with manuscripts. Let us consider who they are and why you have chosen them. The first is a monk, St Anselm. I think the association between manuscripts and monks goes back a long way. For uh, People tend to think of, of, of all medieval manuscripts as having been made by monks, and of course many of them were for about the first thousand years of book production, certainly until about the 11th century. Most, most books were indeed the product of either monks or religious houses in some way. Um, <coughs> the idea of the book is that if you have an enthusiasm for a subject, um, and it can be any, any, any subject at all, and we're all familiar with it now. It can be postage stamps or railway engines or, or music or, or, or Jane Austen. You meet your fellow enthusiasts as complete equals um, with um, a shared interest in the subject itself. And the idea of this is that we would take uh, the widest range of people over the last thousand years um, to, so, uh, to push this kind of fellowship right back through history um, and meet all sorts of people with, with, with interests uh, and enthusiasm in manuscripts or who've devoted their lives to manuscripts and to kind of imagine um, interacting with them. It isn't fiction, there's no time travel, it's pure, it's historical uh, and historical inquiry, but kind to imagine what it would have been like. And we needed to begin, I think, with a monk. And simply because monks were, monks and nuns, were the key figures in the production of manuscripts really up until the 12th century. And St Anselm, um, one hears about him through his proof of the existence of God. Yes. Um, uh, uh, St Anselm has many, many roles. He was both a philosopher uh, and a writer and, um, and was Archbishop of Canterbury. So and a saint, so he could have. We could have called him a monk or a, or a politician or a, or a, a theologian. Well, he was a uh, archbishop at a very interesting time as well. Yeah, well, he was. But but I think if you'd asked him what his job was, he would have said, "I'm a Benedictine monk." I think he would have said that comes first, and it comes right through it. And 
Yeah, one reason for choosing him is we have a great deal of material about him. As you say, he lived at a very interesting moment. Um, he was a monk um, in Beck Abbey in Normandy, and uh, an Italian by birth, as indeed was Lanfranc, who was also had also been a monk at at, um, at Beck. And when they came there, it was a little uh, um, a little rural abbey in the middle of Normandy, in a beautiful valley, but a long way from anywhere, and monks cut themselves off from the world, and I expect they imagined a life of complete isolation there, studying and learning and applying classical learning to religion, and perhaps running a small school um, for the teaching of other monks. In 1066, as everybody knows, everything changed, and Normandy, a small well, not small, but a provincial area of France, suddenly found themselves conquerors of England. And William the Conqueror, coming from Normandy, knew all these people, and he brings in the personnel from the monasteries he knew, and especially from Beck, into England. So the new, his, his appointment for Archbishop of Canterbury was Lanfranc from Beck. Uh, he was succeeded by Anselm from Beck. And in the ruins of Beck itself, there's a tablet up on the wall listing the number of abbots and bishops uh, that came from that small monastery to England at, the, at, the, at the, um, the time of the conquest. And it is remarkable to see how this influx of monks from this one very literate monastery really took over the intellectual culture of England. Um, so he's a man who had greatness thrust upon him. Yes. In a sense. Yes, um, he did, and I think he was a better monk and a better philosopher than he was an archbishop. Um, I think he found that a very difficult job, but he was, um, and 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 uh, one of the reasons for choosing him is we have a great deal of correspondence written by him, and we have a great deal that he himself wrote, and also one of his pupils, uh, an English. Um, uh, English monk wrote a biography of him so that we do have contemporary accounts of him. So we have actually a great deal of his conversation and his interaction. And when Lanfranc arrived in England as Archbishop, he found that the, uh, the library of Canterbury Cathedral, which was a monastic, itself a monastic foundation, um, was poor. Uh, many of the books had been destroyed in a fire by coincidence in 1066. And the correspondence between those two, looked at from a point of view of, of manuscript history, is absolutely fascinating because you see them, uh, uh, they're looking for scribes, they're, hiring, they're looking for exemplars, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're dealing with a supply of parchment, they're having books copied and checked, and they're having them sent off to England, and watching how that happens is something we can really document with Anselm, and it's, it is fascinating. So above all, he's there as author and provider of texts in a sense, producing texts he on is, demand for other, he is, so far as he can. He is a literate man and he yeah. believes enormously in literacy and in books. So he not only uh, helps provide books for other people, but he also uh, is author himself. Mm. And mm. in his life we can watch the publishing of books and how that happened. Mm. And um, clearly the monks of um, of Beck were copying and disseminating books by Anselm mm. both in his lifetime and afterwards but he's also it's a kind of clearinghouse for the uh, uh, discovery of text the discovery mm. and copying of text clearinghouse for, for knowledge in a sense clearinghouse, or, or yeah. for, for 
Ecclesiastes. For knowledge. And, 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 and perhaps a surprising thing that comes out of it is that you would have expected that all this work would be done by the monks themselves. And clearly, they, there is more going on than they can manage to do. And they are hiring professional yeah. scribes. And this is really the first moment when we begin to see what ultimately turns into its final development is a bookshop such yeah. as the place we are sitting now where books are professionally produced yeah. and you can although it's still monastic and he's still doing it from a monastic perspective that both making books themselves and also hiring professionals and that's just the very first moment we we meet um, as we go we meet more scribes but very i can't think that any of your other 12 are actually the authors of texts as such no, Look, no, there are no other go. authors in the sense, I mean, uh, many of them did write books, yes. but um, Momsen had a, over a thousand publications, but he wasn't the publisher of them. Well, he and um, wasn't the scribe. And I he mean, certainly wasn't the scribe <laughs> of them. <laughs> they so, weren't so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. illuminated manuscripts. Mm. So the next one is a uh, very different character. And somebody who's well known as you point out to us even now I'm, sh I'm sure we've got an addition somewhere here of the très riche uh, of the Duc de Berry um, so who who was he? The Duc de Berry was born in um, 1340 and died in 1416 to put him in context he was the son of uh, John II, King of France, um, and then subsequently, in the nature of things, became the brother of the king, brother of Charles V, and then finally the uncle of the king. So he was uh, a, a close member of the royal family who regarded themselves as uh, uh, almost divine. The, they were the, 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 uh, you know, the most Christian kings of, of, of Europe, as they saw themselves. And they're a family of high culture and book collecting all the way through. The Duke de Berry himself was a was a collector. He was a real collector. I think he would have been um, difficult to meet. I think he was autocratic and rude and and despotic and and un, and 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 his domestic life probably rather unpleasant. But what a connoisseur! There's and a I know if I got him in his library, <laughs> we would both enjoy ourselves. That that is where his soul is, and that's what I would I'd love the, to um, meet him for. The, the book is wonderfully illustrated. There are, there are a lot running all the way through. There are a lot of really well-produced um, for a commercial book illustrations. And one of them, when you get to the Duke de Berry, is him waiting at New Year um, uh, in front of his fire, protected by a large fire screen and the beautiful blue hanging behind him, on which is written, Approche. Approche. Um, um, this is the January miniature of the Trieriche of the Duke de Berry, and um, there was an old cu a custom which goes back to classical antiquity uh, of illustrating the months of the year with what they call the occupation of the month. And uh, one of the traditional occupations for January was kind of feasting at New Year, and you get pictures of a man sitting at a table or something like that. In uh, usually, I mean, obviously, this is in indoors in midwinter. Um, the Limburg brothers, the artists of this manuscript, have taken it to a, a 
level that has had never happened before, in which you see not only the Duke himself, and recognisably him, sitting at his table surrounded by identifiable works of art, but all his court is there, and they're probably all real people, and the objects on the table are real, and he is presiding over a New Year's feast, and it has, as you say, it's got these words... Um, in which he's almost, it's not absolutely clear whether he is speaking them or whether his steward standing beside him is speaking them. But above it says, approche, approche, come in, come in. He's being hospitable. This is, this is the, the New Year's festival. Um, it was also the occasion when um, gifts were received and exchanged in France, a kind of um, rather like our, 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 our diluted survival of, of Christmas presents, but what were called étrennes, um, which were um, often very expensive gifts exchanged at New Year, and um, and a great deal of thought went into them, and um, they were probably not some unwanted present under a Christmas tree, but uh, the Duke probably made it pretty clear what it is he wanted, rather like a wedding list now. and um, And looking through his inventories, which we can say a, a great deal about, it, they often record books that were given as a train and, and who gave them. Um, and some of the Duke's finest manuscripts came in at, 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 at the New Year, at this dinner. Um, I would like to think he's saying approche because he wants to, you know, like the child under the tree. He wants his, yeah, well, wants you, his presence, but I can't prove that's what that means. You make a very mm. delightful case for that, though. Yeah. There he is looking, as you said, pretty grim, yeah. uh, um, in a sense. And yeah. yet you, th you then list the things mm. that he was given. Yes. Uh, and we have, we have, for the Duke, we have extraordinary inventories of his possessions. And in choosing every one of the 12 people in this book, I... Um, we had to have people where there is enough documentation to be able to tell a story. It's mm, no good sure. picking on somebody on which there, there is nothing. So Anselm is a good one because there's a great deal of uh, both biography and of correspondence. Um, and the Duke de Berry is, 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 is such an appealing one because we have such precise inventories of his collections. And you can see him collecting books in an extraordinary way. I mean, a real bibliophile collector of books but also of other things he collected relics and and and, and jewels and curiosities and and he was clearly um, he's an obsessive collector and he's interested in um, who made the books and where they come from and who they belong to and he both commissioned books and bought old ones uh, bought second-hand ones back to his oldest that I know of was the 11th century and um, he's um, He's a compulsive buyer of books, and um, and you can see that in the inventories, almost as if we were walking around his uh, mm. his library with the man himself. Um, and it records where he got them from, what he paid for them, who gave them to him, uh, what happened to them afterwards, what they were valued at. Some he gave away, some he exchanged. He normally mm. got in more than he lost. But you really get, for the first time in European history, I get a sense of a real bibliophile. And he wanted weird books. He wanted funny. He could afford anything. I mean, one of the richest people in Europe. Um, and he's buying ones that are odd, odd shapes, are bigger than usual, are smaller than usual, are decorated in a way they'd never been done before. Um, his brother, Charles V, had a bigger library. But the Duke de Berry's library is is bibliophilic and he cares mm. who painted them and where they come from. There's it's fascinating. He, he, you make the point also that he was a great builder as well, of castles and yes. so forth, but that it's actually not the buildings that have survived, the castles, it's the books that have survived. The little books, I think that would surprise him. But 
you will know, <laughs> um, books have a way of surviving. Curious. Um, most of us have very few possessions from childhood. Um, and when the tricycles and the cricket bats have all gone, it's the books that mm. survive. Mm. Uh, mm. Books, books just get put back on a shelf and um, about a quarter mm. of the Duke de Berry's manuscripts still survive and still turn up from time to time. I mean, it's extraordinary mm. how they do survive, whereas he would have thought his great stone castles would have been indestructible. They've mostly gone. And you've handled, I think you say, the Très riche. I've had it out twice. I've seen it twice. twice yes. And what's it? And what are the colours like? What's it like well, to handle it? Well, the thing about manuscripts, more than any other work of art from the Middle Ages, is they very often survive in extraordinarily fresh condition because they've been shut, so mm. they've been away from the light. And looking at frescoes or tapestries. Um, or, or um, painted woodwork and so on. Mostly what survives in the Middle Ages is faded and damaged mm. or repainted, but in manuscripts you get that real freshness mm. which can still survive. I mean, and um, the Trevisier has been a precious book all its mm. life and it is, um, it's in marvellous condition. So the, the colours are all the colors, the vibrant. But, but, but so they are in all, in, in all manuscripts mm. except here is a, a commission for one of the richest people in, in, in all of Europe. They are pulling all the stops out. Mm. Uh, you alluded to that blue. Well, that is lapis. Mm. You know, I mean, lapis and gold, blue and blue and blue and gold were the heraldic colours of France. So they had a particular uh, importance to, the, to that family. But it shimmers. It's... It's a fabulous book, and it's 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 quite big. Mm. I mean, most books of ours are something you could fit in your hand. The mm. the, the Trevisier takes two hands to hold mm. it, um, and it was never finished, um, or at least mm. it wasn't finished in his lifetime. And then it passed down through the royal family, and eventually ended up with the Savoy family in the uh, in the fourteen seventies, and was completed still in Bourges, where, which is the capital of Berry, by a, a later artist, mm. um, and then it passed into the possession of Margaret of Austria, the regent of the Netherlands, um, and it was seen there by the subject of my chapter four. And I quite like the way that many of these manuscripts, mm. uh, we have very different people of all over Europe from all sorts of different reasons for wanting manuscripts, but very often the, uh, actual manuscripts themselves have passed down through a succession it's a, of it's different a lovely people. Feature. They've all in interacted mm. with them as the manuscripts It's a lovely feature of the book that a uh, manuscript from one chapter suddenly pops up again they 200 travel, pages. They travel through history. Yeah, in, yeah, and um, the sale catalogues yeah, and so um, forth. The, the th third character, I'm going to, I don't want to spend too long on, uh, on for the simple reason that uh, we did a podcast with uh, Ross King. Yeah, his good. Um, yeah. mm. Book, the bookseller of Florence. Same man. So the same, same man, Vespasiano da Bistici. Yes. And he is a bookseller, and therefore, naturally, I would like to spend a long time of on course. him. Of course. But yes, I think course. we shall leave him alone right. and uh, refer people to that podcast if they want. Um, there is a lot of different material here about him, but um, it's nice to see him being given an airing. But let's go on to the next person who is, like St Anselm, a very important contributor to the manuscripts themselves. The Illuminator, Simon Benning. Um, oddly enough, he or, or, there's also a crossover with another po podcast, but, um, The History of Water, 
where Damiao de Goyce turns up. Ah, right. so yes, exactly. Yeah, yes, he does. What turn is up. the relation of um, Benning to Damiao de Goyce, and who was Benning? Simon Benning was an illuminator, a professional manuscript illuminator, and was uh, an extraordinarily good painter, um, born probably in Ghent and working mostly in Bruges in the 16th century. Note the date that he wasn't even born until about 30 years after the invention of printing. And mm. Printing um, came in, um, was invented in in Germany, uh, I'm sure it was Gutenberg, and there's no reason to question that, printing with movable type, uh, comes out, uh, spreads out from Mainz in the 1450s, and uh, by the 1470s it's all across Europe. And you would have thought that's the end of manuscripts. And we get a little bit of that with Vespasiano in mm. the previous chapter where uh, he quotes Federico de Montefeltro saying he would never let a printed book into his library. Um, so clearly there were people who were um, uh, had rather old-fashioned views on that that a manuscript was a proper book and mm. that printing is rather vulgar. And um, and it remains to be seen whether or not printing will ever catch on, but it, <laughs> it may eventually. Um, but Simon Benning was a manuscript illuminator at a time when that was against the trend mm. and you would have thought it was all over. And he was tremendously successful. And by um, the middle of his life, he was being courted by all the royal families of Europe, wanted manuscripts illuminated by him. He is an extraordinarily good painter, but he learnt, as purveyors of luxury goods do now, that in a sense, the more you, ch you know, the more you charge, the more highly valued your work <laughs> becomes. Mm. And um, he and he has to be able to do things that the printers can't do. So mm. he does these extraordinary miniatures, in which the whole scene kind of disappears into. Um, kind of ethereal um, background. They're, they're just hauntingly beautiful. And biblical scenes being translated to 16th century 16th century Flanders. Flanders and you get, in a rather uh, you'll have a scene of King David and in the background there are the, 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 um, the canals and, and, and it's lovely and, that because and they and appear brickwork of course Bruges. Yeah, I mean, in, it's, the, um, in the but, illustrations. But that, that occurs also of course in, in old master paintings mm. and there's a great deal of crossover with uh, with paintings. But, but a reason for having him is that um, we know quite a lot about him and he was the uh, he was a member of the guild of um, her painters in in Bruges and indeed was dean of the guild and the records of the guild survive so we can go through we can find many examples of mm. you know what his payments were. So, so this interest of him is partly that he was uh, supreme at his art yes, but partly be. also that, that he's one of the earliest who is or primary ones who is named? Uh, as I said, we have to have figures where we can say but it's enough about him to, to, to tell a story. Um, I think that one of the great, great illuminators of the 15th century was an artist known as the Rowan Master. Fantastic, hauntingly beautiful illuminations. We don't even know his name. Mm. Um, we're not even quite sure where he worked. Uh, he's easily recognisable, but um, Benning is one where there is there is an there is an, uh, an individual there, and um, his daughter came to England and worked mm. in London. So there is a, there's a connection connection with mm. England too. Uh, um. um, your uh, is it fifth sixth fifth no, I, I um, is that. a completely different character, Sir Robert Cotton, a mysterious fellow. Um, it seems to be shadowy. Robert Cotton was of good family and um, 
he had a uh, and and he, he he's at the late Elizabethan early Stuart period and um, and England has had a dramatic reformation in the 1530s the uh, all the monasteries of England and most of the church libraries uh, have been closed and scattered hundreds of thousands of books have been destroyed and thrown away and the Reformation came at exactly the same moment as the Renaissance begins to arrive in England and people are interested in learning as never before mm. and books have been destroyed and they're, they're torn apart by this desire to get rid of medieval Catholicism and to preserve history and Cotton is um, is really the second generation of that. The first generation were people like Leyland and Matthew Parker who'd been born before the Reformation. Cotton was is an Elizabethan and to him they are antiquarian objects and he sees the learning and history of England as being scattered. He's passionately keen on um, the uh, operation of government. He, he went to school in Westminster, he ended up buying a house uh, in the complex of Westminster Palace and he is trying to put together a library of the resources of Englishness. They're kind of redefining what it means to be English in the 17th century and he is looking for evidence mm. of English antiquity, English language, English government, uh, English royalty, English literature uh, and, and, and trying to use these as resources of government. Mm. Uh, English government then and even now was based on precedent and they were afraid there was no precedent and he is putting mm. together a kind of intellectual armory Again, that's extremely for, interesting. For, when for, for Stuart England, and um, and it's fascinating. Uh, as a man, he's always present. He's always there. He's a manipulator. He's a fixer, but he's never a primary figure. Um, everybody knows him, but he doesn't write anything. You know. But rich. Um, he's wealthy. He is wealthy. He's not enormously rich like um, the Medici's. Mm. Um, he's a yeah, he's a wealthy man. He also persuades people to mm. give him manuscripts. Manuscripts were not that expensive. Mm. And he has this vision of a kind of national library. Mm. Very, very, very early for now. It's not a royal collection. Mm. There were other, um, other big, big royal libraries and, and university libraries. This is neither. This is mm. a sort of, sort of what the Library of Congress was intended to be, a kind of resource for mm. government. Um, and that's what, he, that's what he's trying to do. But it's predicated on uh, a, an idea of England. Yes, and Englishness. And Englishness. And Englishness, and that sort of sense yeah. of... Uh, so he's, a, he's an early Brexiteer. Yes, I think he probably is. And I think that those many of those early collectors were my previous employer, Matthew Parker, uh, um, who died in 1575, <laughs> was certainly, was certainly yeah. a Brexiteer. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the kind of belief was that um, it, you know, England had an identity of its own and it all went wrong when we joined the common market in 1066 and we let the <laughs> French in uh, and so on. It's it appalled, fascinating it's seeing those precedents. So, so he's kind of going back again to, mm. if you like, pre-Anselm, mm. uh, going back to that sort of sense of Englishness. Mm. Um, and he had a gospel book on which he believed that the uh, Anglo-Saxon kings of England had taken their oaths of office and he tried to get it used for the coronation of Charles mm. I. In fact, that all went wrong politically. But, mm. but there was that sort of sense that you are endorsing the monarchy mm. by uh, reference back to, mm. to, to, to England before the conquest. But it, and it, it's extremely interesting that in this sh shadowy 
character, uh, a manipulator, as you say, seeing the manuscripts being used as instruments of power. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And he didn't, unlike some of the other characters in, 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 in this fictional club, he wasn't that keen to get them published. He rather liked, I mean, he's not interested in printed mm. books. He wants, he presumably believes that every manuscript is unique and that while he owns the, uh, the unique sources for English history, he then controls, to some extent, he controls what's available and what's used. Um, and this is a slightly dangerous line as England descended into civil war um, and uh, the different sides kind of uh, drew into faction. So um, they became suspicious of this man and his propaganda machine, as it was seen. And in, f in the end, the king closes his library, gets closed and opened several times. It all becomes rather complicated mm. and rather sad at the end of his life. And his vision is never really realised. Um, and the collection then passed down to his, his son and then his grandson, um, who gave it to the nation eventually in the early 18th century. And then, m even more famously, it is badly burnt in a mm. fire in the 18th century. Um, and many of the books were destroyed or damaged. And, um, and it was that fire itself kind of focused the minds of Hanoverian England on the fragility of English culture and mm. with other circumstances led to the, to the foundation of the British Museum uh, which was really a library. So, so what, what survived the 18th century fire yes. became core, uh, part of the core of, of what of is now the British what Library. Is, what is now the British Library is of course yeah. the British Museum until our lifetime um, and that itself is quite an early development in that um, most of the big national libraries of Europe began as royal collections, mm. whereas the British Museum was always a public collection. Mm. And Cotton, I think, would have liked that. And mm. the Cotton books are still in now in what is now the British Library, and they're still their shelf marks, their way of ordering them, are still ordered by the uh, the names of the emperors whose busts Cotton had above his bookcases. So, you know, um, any Cotton book has this sort of bizarre sounding name of, you know, it's Cotton Cleopatra B19 <laughs> or whatever, which you think is something extraordinary. In fact, that was the just simply how they were arranged. In it's rather nice um, that. I mean, and they're still there. They're still used there. We arrange books here in ways that are surprising to a lot of people. Right. And, and from our point of view, it's under the middle window. Uh, right, exactly. It's sort of preserving, mm -hmm. preserving these things. Mm -hmm. It's nice, I think. Um, from, uh, well, one of the things about Cotton is unlike, say, the Duke de Berry, he, from what I gather, he's not really interested in what the manuscripts look like. He doesn't no, care about them. He doesn't care a jot what they look mm. like. Uh, well, he hardly cares. Um, it's always said he doesn't care. He hacks books around, he takes them apart, he puts them together, he binds up different bits of books. He cuts up towards it. I sort of feel that towards the end of his life, he must have somehow looked through his manuscripts and thought some of them are rather dull. And he cuts up manuscripts, decorated manuscripts, and pastes in little bits of illumination into his books. It's a bizarre and extraordinary thing to do. And he's <laughs> often he's mocked for that. But I think there's a little bit of he kind of wishes they were prettier. Um, but but he is not. No, he's not. He is in no way a connoisseur of hmm. beautiful books. Hmm. Um, he didn't. Get, he cropped them. I mean, he would he would have them cut down to fit mm. fit his bookcases and didn't mind at all. There's a, that practice is, we meet later on in another one of his yes, great yes. 
Yeah, has a huge collection, yeah, but exactly. uh, they have to be under 13 inches yes, high. And, and, and John Ruskin, who again doesn't get a chapter but figures, floats in and out of several ones, uh, was inclined to cut his own books down to fit their shelves. He didn't mind at all. Or, <laughs> um, you know, would take a saw to them yeah. quite, quite, quite happily. The, um, the, the next character has similarities in a way to Cotton. He's interested, I think, in the preserving texts. Um, you describe him as the rabbi, David Oppenheim. Yes. Um, the reason for putting him in is that he is a Jewish, I mean, he's collecting Hebrew books, and he's doing it entirely from a Jewish perspective. And um, you can tell by my name, Christopher, that I'm not Jewish. Um, but I find it a totally fascinating world. It is kind of parallel world running right through the history of books um, in Europe through the Middle Ages and beyond um, but particularly in the, the Middle Ages there were numerous countless manuscripts being made in made and illuminated in Hebrew at the same time and often by the same people as were making Western books and this kind of magic mirror world and hmm. the word mirror is uh, it's almost applicable because from our perspective they're writing them backwards I mean everything is is kind of um, in mirror image and here is a collector in the uh, late 17th century German by, by birth uh, who became chief rabbi in Moravia and then in Prague um, who is like Cotton but for very different reasons is gathering Hebrew books to use as texts a rabbi's job is to pronounce on 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 uh, uh, legal or, or, or moral issues using as early a resource as you possibly can and he doesn't care a jot how old his manuscripts are but he does care who the authors are and their authority and he's putting together this huge library in Prague and um, and a reason for, one reason for choosing him which is just for, is a convenience for me is that his library passed down through a complicated series of family descents and eventually in the 19th century ended up in the Bodleian Library mm. in Oxford. So it is accessible to me. I mean, it, is, it still exists. Do you think that would have pleased him? I presume that the, the fact that, they are, that the books are preserved would have pleased him. After all, that was his I, object. I, mean, uh, I personally think Oxford is, uh, I mean, not only is it one of the world's great libraries and great universities they also have an extremely important wide-ranging collection of mm. Hebrew books so, so it is actually in a very good mm. context mm. there were those when the collection was bought in the 1820s who were rather shocked to feel that Hebrew books mm. were passing into um, uh, into non-Hebrew mm. hands but of course they're mostly used now and the study of, of Hebrew manuscripts are you comfortable with that or is it, or, or is it a completely separate Discipline. I, utterly, I can't read a word of Hebrew. Um, I'm utterly fascinated by them. When I worked at um, at, at Sotheby's, I was um, notionally responsible for Hebrew manuscripts, so I was involved with many catalogues of them. Um, I had to take help on every one. I don't even know which way up to hold them. Um, but with a Hebrew one, you can't, I personally, can't read it. Hmm. And I still like them. And I always find that there's that sort of slight feeling you show somebody a manuscript and they say, have you read it? Hmm. Well, sometimes I have, and 
often I haven't. And, but a Hebrew one, I absolutely haven't read it. I know I haven't read it. I know I will never read it. And I still find them fascinating as books. And you've got all those same questions about how a book was put together, who did it, when it was done, what it cost, where it's been, how it survived, who illuminated it, uh, uh, you know, uh, why it was chosen, um, uh, what it was worth, um, you know, where the materials came from, what they were copying it from, all those questions which applied to books in, in Latin or in the vernacular mm -hmm. language um, can also apply to, to Hebrew books. And uh, the, the, the script that one sees in a lot of the others that are pictured, uh, there's a term that you use it, Unkill? Unseal. 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 Um, are you, how easy do you find it to read uh, Unseal? Unseal is extremely easy to read. Unseal means capital letters. That is the script of ancient Rome. Um, ultimately, <coughs> it's, think of those, <coughs> those Roman monuments, you mm. know, we can all read SPQR, mm. you know, on, mm. on, or, you know, the inscriptions on Trajan's column. Yeah. Those aren't exactly unseals, uh, but they are a direct, I mean, uh, unseals are a direct development from mm. them. They're capital letters and easy mm. to read. Mm. Um, uh, reading any script is simply a matter of practice. Mm. And I'm not terribly good at a wide range of, um, of languages but um, people always say the way to learn a language is just simply to use it to mm, practice it mm, and um, you look at some manuscript you think I can't read a word of it well just try mm. you know just read it and after a bit you get your eye in and you can do it and I actually don't find mm. I find I can read most manuscripts. It's like books. reading a palimpsest letter that to begin with it looks absolutely baffling. And then well you a palimpsest is, is more complicated because that has been erased and then written over the top. So if you're trying to read the mm. undertext, it depends. I mean, it may not be that visible, um, mm. but assuming that the script is is visible, within reason, I can. I think mm. I can read most medieval manuscripts. Um, the the next character I find absolutely fascinating. Um, you describe him as a savant, Jean Joseph Rive. Um, he, he sounds absolutely horrible. Um, People are like manuscripts in that some manuscripts are absolutely horrible, you know, and they're really ugly, you know, and some people are, are, are absolutely horrible, and I like all manuscripts and all people. Um, and the Abbe Reeve was an irritating, quarrelsome, difficult, complicated uh, uh, man, uh, uh, um, a priest, um, well, trained as a priest, um, ordained as a priest in France in the 18th century, uh, who is passionate, absolutely obsessed with old books. And he has various jobs, none of them very satisfactory, but the most important was working as, um, as librarian and advisor to the Duc de la Vallière, who's uh, a charming aristocrat and collector. Um, but uh, the Abbé Reeve is, um, is immensely learned and immensely widely read. And he is looking at manuscripts for the first time as a connoisseur. He's interested in the illuminators. He wants to know who they were as people. He wants to know how old the books were. He really wants to know their dates. Um, uh, the rabbi didn't really care whether mm. they were, or probably didn't really care whether they were 12th century or 14th century. Um, I don't think that, um, that Cotton really could, um, uh, or really minded uh, how old they were mm. or knew. Um, the Abbe Reeve wants to know, and he draws up all these ways of looking at manuscripts, which many of which still apply now. You know, you look for clues in 
evolution of handwriting, of the style of illumination, what you can tell from costumes in the pictures, what you can tell about what you know about the author, wh where they lived, where they, what the, you know, what the library was, how the thing has survived, all those kind of clues that we would now use mm. for dating around, but many of them come out of uh, the Abbey Reeve. Um, was he a nice man? Not very. Would I have loved to have met him? Enormous. And he's been absolutely fascinating. There's a, I want to read a couple of lines here, which is absolutely... Um, there is always a certain diversion in reading insults about well-known people, but the Abbe Reeves' diatribes are so relentless and his accusations so trivial that one sometimes longs for him only to be quiet, as doubtless they did too. Every page is padded with references to obscure reference books intended to demonstrate his own enormously wide reading and prodigious memory. We might now diagnose an element of autism. <laughs> Uh, I've uh, d delighted in that because uh, I sort of feel I'd, I've met him. <laughs> I've met him in here. There's a it's just a recognisable type, yeah. but but the sense the, of him being the Duke de la Valliere, um in whose house he lived, um, was uh, fancied him. So he liked the sort of intellectual salon of his life, and he was a friend of Voltaire and, and others. But when um, but he wasn't of great intellect himself, the Duke. And when his guests got too clever or asked him questions he couldn't understand, he would say, gentlemen, I will let loose my bulldog <laughs> and the Abbe Reeve would be summoned. Um, and um, I think they rather, I think the Duke rather enjoyed this, this, <laughs> this, 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 this quarrelsome man. Yeah. Um, but, but quarrelsome he was, evidently, but, uh, but also, Clever. Very extremely very, clever very clever and very wide very wide read and very observant and he knew he knew about Oppenheim and Cotton and the Duke de Berry and all the others I mean he is he is in that very much in that line and um, and in a sense established the study of yes, manuscripts yes, yes, uh, in a modern way he, he's it's connoisseur it's the very very beginning of connoisseurship mm. and uh, manuscripts as collectible objects and as items that have a commercial mm. value we're also interested in commercial value is your next subject, Fred, Sir Frederick Madden, yes. um, who was, we've already really referred to the British Library, but as having been the British Museum, who was the first, not the first, but uh, important. Um, he was the keeper of manuscripts in the British Museum uh, at its most important period in the mid 19th century. I think it, it's worth putting it just in the kind of perspective that the, the museum was originally founded as primarily as a library. Um, there were three departments. There was manuscripts, uh, which included a few other things like coins, manuscripts, printed books, and everything else. Mm. And um, everything else included antiquities and stuffed animals and so on. And the the man now called the director of the British Museum was called the principal librarian, and mm. that uh, so it was um, it was a it was largely a, a library, and in the nineteenth um, century it has this enormous expansion, and there were two giant figures there: the head of printed books was Antonio Panizzi, and the head of manuscripts was uh, Frederick Madden, and they loathed each other, <laughs> um, and they were doing it from completely different perspectives, but they both believed that acquisition was absolutely mm. at the core of what they were doing. And Madden spent his life gathering 
treasures from all over the world. There's absolute internationalism gathering them in for a public collection mm. in London. And people bringing things to him, people of course, things, but you know, him selling books but he's and attending auctions and going and all the time. And 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 and, and where he's so the fun of doing him is he kept um, a really mm. careful mm. journal for every day of his adult life, so from his teens until his 70s, not just short entries every day, but pages and pages every day of kind of self-analysis of, of, of what he was doing and what he was going to do and what he was planning to do and who he'd met and where he'd been. And he's a very meticulous observer. And these journals, um, hundreds of volumes, are in the Bodleian Library, as it happens, um, fully available to the public and have been for a long time and they're not unknown but they're not published mm. not yet mm. published and the material that we can extract from those gives an extraordinary mm. view of somebody right through the 19th mm. he knew everybody so he knew everybody and through the diaries you can track you the, can tra you the can track acquisitions both, both people and manuscripts yeah. and manuscripts he went to see and didn't didn't buy Hmm. or manuscripts he went to see and didn't want and those he tried to buy and failed to buy hmm. and what I find fascinating is he, and, and of course his own his own life slightly complicated his first wife died in childbirth um, and then he had all sorts of struggles to replace her uh, recorded in <laughs> extraordinary detail um, and it's full of kind of agonies of indecision and what am I going to do about this and will I manage to buy that and so I know of course what happened mm. and he doesn't mm. and it's a very odd business it's like interviewing him on every day of his life but I know things he mm. knows a huge amount I don't know of course he does he's telling me every line he's telling me mm. things I don't know but I know the answers to the things he's worried about and mm. sometimes you almost want to reassure him and say it'll be all right yeah. or you want to say be careful you're not that's going to go badly wrong <laughs> um and he gets involved don't buy it don't, don't buy, buy it or he gets involved with 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 the forger and thief libri for example and and gets entangled you just want to say <laughs> stand back um and it's um i feel i know the hmm. man very well hmm. um you mentioned forgery the next one is a forger constantine simonides all each character as they come up I mean we're going th through them character by character but the point really is that they're introducing a different aspect of manuscript collection and the world of manuscripts so here here we have the forger how much forgery is there in the study of when you for uh, there is not a great deal of forgery uh, uh, well the answer is there isn't, don't know. Well, there isn't much, or they're very good at it. Um, but, but it is actually very difficult to forge a complete mm. manuscript. It, it's, it's, it's rather like forging a, uh, you know, a medieval house. Uh, mm. uh, manuscripts have a provenance, they have a history, they have a text, they have a language, they, they have handwriting, they have decoration, they have parchment, which is or isn't old. And uh, forgeries are usually easily recognizable in the generation after they were made. Mm. And um, there, aren't, there aren't many many forgeries around um, but um, <coughs> Simonides was a Greek and he's forging Greek manuscripts principally of classical texts in the 19th century and he was a, a conjurer really he um, a fashionable thing in the 19th century and he's going around all over Europe um, 
so he pops up in uh, all over England, in London and Leipzig, and uh, London and Liverpool and Oxford, but also in 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 Paris and Leipzig and um, uh, and Vienna and Istanbul and, and Alexandria and so on. And um, <coughs> wherever he goes, he produces whatever manuscripts people most want to see. So he turns up unknown classical texts, and this was sensational at the time. Only gradually, bit by bit, people began to realise there was something mm -hmm. funny about these. Um, <coughs> And it all tumbles out in the end, mm. but they're all fakes. Um, so from fakes, we go on to uh, Theodore Mommsen, the editor. You describe him as the editor. You call him lots of things, um, but I've tried to call him. He is not a collector, not at all. This is not just a book about collectors mm. or, or whatever. He is, he is a classicist, um, politician. Um, paleographer, uh, a jurist. He's interested in Roman Roman history and Roman uh, Roman law primarily, and was a giant in the figure of classical studies in Germany in the 19th century. <coughs> His is really the moment when paleography, which is the general term for the study of old manuscripts, moves from the gentleman amateur into a university position mm. and he is a professor so and he uses the authority of his university. He's there as a, as a brilliant student of texts, an interpreter of, text. of texts. And he's <coughs> he doesn't invent but he uses that technique which is very very important in studying manuscripts of making families of texts. Every time a manuscript is copied, because they're copied by people, everybody, any of us, even us, copying a text will make little mistakes. It'll mm. happen, I mean, it's human nature. And then the next time another scribe mm. comes along and copies it, he may correct some of these mistakes and make some of his own by mistake. And then somebody else does it and mm. so on. And you get these kind of family trees mm. of text mm. and you can recon often reconstruct the original wording of a text by putting all the family trees together and you and 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 and, and trying to uh, uh, work out how these alterations and um, emendations mm. have happened and when they've happened and uh, Momsen is, is 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 a master at that. So in the same or not the same a parallel way to Abbe Reeve be being a connoisseur and 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 int introducing the inventing the study of texts as 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 or the, the study of manuscripts, discipline of, of identifying and so forth. Um, Momsen is, is introducing the, the study of, uh, the, the discipline thought, of textual analysis. I haven't thought of it quite like that, but you're right. In a way, what, what the Abbe Reeve did to illumination, that's to say how to analyse it mm. um, and place it in context, mm. is what Momsen is doing with texts. Mm. And huge, very, very. Fa he was very famous. He was everybody knew him. He was the sort of the archetype of the mad professor with the long white hair and the relentless energy. And uh, everybody knew him. He's in forever on the road, always travelling, turning up everywhere. Um, you, it, with all your subjects, you um, imagine meeting them, and the, your meeting with Momsen is particularly delightful. You say. I, I would probably need to catch his attention with a manuscript he would sell his soul to see. And I think I know what it is. It is the Codex Gregorian, G Gregorianus, and I own it. 
That's wow. quite, a, yeah. <laughs> quite a conversation I stopper. I enjoyed writing that I bet. sentence. Yeah. Well, some little fragments of it survived, but only fragments. That's all that survived. Well, but of course. I'm not going to ask you to talk about that. I think that people should yeah, read it. It's I absolutely yeah, delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we go on then to uh, one who's much better known, in a sense, as Sidney Cockerell, um, disciple, in a sense, of both Morris and Ruskin, and collector in his own right, cataloguer, um, delighting in provenance, connoisseurship, acquisitions. Again, he, he's well documented, he, he's riveting um, as, as a figure and in your description of him, but I don't want to linger, I want to go on to the, your final one, who certainly wasn't known to me, um, and I think is probably not so well known to an English audience, and is the first woman in you, among your people. Um, the curator, Belle da Costa Green, who was she? Yeah, the question of whether there are women in here, there are many women in the story, yeah. but, but um, we end up with a, not only a woman, but an American, and she was, um, she was the, the, the librarian and curator to uh, uh, J. Pierpont Morgan, the richest man in America. And in, she'd been working, we know quite a lot about her uh, early life, but she'd been working in the library in Princeton when, um, where she came to the acquaintance of Junius Morgan, who was uh, uh, Pierpont Morgan's nephew, who brought her to uh, New York in 1906 for interview. And she explained that, um, when she said she was in her early 20s, um, and she explained that her name, Belle da Costa Green, that the da Costa was the Portuguese maiden name of her grandmother, and that her mother was a, um, a widow um, from a Dutch family in Virginia, uh, fallen on hard times and that she needed a job. Um, and she was employed. And um, that sentence, or couple of sentences that I've just outlined roughly what her her description of herself contains about ten deliberate lies. I mean, she was um, she was a, in a sense um, it was an, it was an invented persona. Um, mm. She was not Portuguese at all. It was completely untrue. She wasn't. She was much older than she said. Uh, her father was very much still alive, um, and uh, her mother was not Dutch. Uh, she was Afro American. And and she had two two grandparents who were who had been slaves. Uh, both her both her parents were grandchildren of slaves, so actually okay, two great, -grandparents. great grandparents, okay. but she was very pale, I mean yeah. pale, or relatively pale, and what was then called passing was the term, um, at the time of segregation, it was very dangerous to pretend to be European, um, when you largely weren't, and um, and this is not the primary subject of my chapter, but it does become, it becomes part of it in that sense that the theme running through the whole book is no matter who you are, or what your background, or where you come from, or what your wealth, mm. or what your status, a love of manuscripts, a love of anything, but in this case a love of manuscripts, crosses all social boundaries. But one of the here is a girl from the most unlikely, and in fact, from her perspective, invented source with a passion for manuscripts, mm. gets this job and suddenly finds herself in the in the 
uh, social circle of the of the Morgans and their kind of the, the well, Carnegies and the Vanderbilts and the Operas and the Gilded Age of New York, and um, and people never questioned her background. It, it's fascinating that the the love affair you referred to, uh, you, you tell us about in relation to her, yes. um, is with Berenson, who uh, who taught her a great deal, yes. um, but also in a different way from her was a doubtful. His, his, his he was not what he how he presented himself. He presented he himself rather as from a sort of old Catholic family from Boston. He was in fact a, a Russian Jew. Um, but it was a time when many people, particularly mm. in America but also here, were reinventing themselves. Mm. It was a time when, um, you know, here people were putting names with double barrels. And I think, I think we've both got a dirt, haven't we? But both of us have have names. Yours is probably completely authentic. I, no. think, I think mine is a Victorian <laughs> invention. You know, it was, it, people were doing yeah. that then. Um, but it's it's lovely the, the yeah. way you, you bring her in as a she, as an example of exactly of yeah. what, how what you say that the crossing of the boundaries. Crossing of the boundaries. My subject is not on <coughs> on, on, on on kind of um, the position of black or white. I mean that's not it's not mm. I've no position on that. Mm -hmm. I mean you know she is an extraordinary, extraordinarily energetic, uh, a tornado in the manuscript mm. world, and she sweeps across. Europe, mm. acquiring and identifying manuscripts for Pierpont Morgan and creating one of the world's great libraries, but she's doing it as an American and as a woman, mm. and in fact, as we now know, a black woman. Yeah, it's a, it's a delightful irony also, I, it, it seemed to me when I read it, that having um, presided in fact over the acquisition of one of the most remarkable publication, public collections in the world, she is arguably of more public influence than any of the other subjects in your book. Well, I mean, it's a highly contentious thing to say, perhaps, but she is a huge influence in... Huge influence in America. And mm. Pierpont Morgan, the original, there were two Pierpont Morgans, but, but the original, the, the elder one, uh, was a collector, like the Duke de Berry. He was an accumulator. And he was buying, and he had unlimited, effectively unlimited money. And he was buying and buying and buying and buying in every field of art you could think of. Um, and filling the house in, 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 in 36th Street in New York. Just piles of things. And, 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 and Belle Green is an organizer. And she is interested, in, first of all, in early printed books and manuscripts, mainly. It, through the influence of Berenson, it comes more and more into manuscripts, is really what obsesses her. Um, and she focuses his acquisitions. She gets rid mm. of a whole lot of stuff and focuses it on the mm. best manuscripts. Mm. And because Pierpont Morgan is a big name in American society and everyone saw him collecting manuscripts, then suddenly a whole generation of other rich Americans begin collecting manuscripts mm. too. This may not be may not be quite as simple as saying that is Belle Green who's done that but she is right in there she's tapped a moment when medievalism and kind of buying your way into uh, what they would have perceived as grand European aristocratic libraries mm. became very much what the, the very rich Americans were doing in the, mm. um, um, in the first three decades of the 20th century. Um, book refers to an enormous quantity of people besides the 12 selected for membership in your club. 
every chapter opens up a world of artistry, scholarship, patronage, complex provenances and so forth, each of which is peopled with multiple scribes, artists, dealers, collectors and scholars, and the index is huge. But many are therefore left out of your club who might have supposed they had a good claim on inclusion. Ruskin, Morris, for example, eager and important collectors whose passion for medieval manuscripts affected their own work. But one of the most intriguing of your exclusions, it seems to me, is Thomas Phillips. Can you just... Sir Thomas Phillips is not excluded at all. He comes <laughs> into more chapters than yes, probably anybody exactly. else comes to Duke de Berry. Uh, Sir Thomas Phillips um, was born in 1792, died in 1872, and he was a um, English baronet from 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 uh, Worcestershire um, who was an obsessive manuscript collector. He just bought and bought and bought and bought, and he formed the largest library of manuscripts of all kinds. He had no taste. Um, but unlimited passion formed the largest library of manuscripts ever assembled by any one individual and um, he eventually moved house shortly before he died but, but that both houses he lived in were absolutely stacked floor to ceiling with manuscripts he, we don't know exactly how many he had but perhaps 100,000 manuscripts um, and an extraordinarily large number of printed books and um, he was difficult um, irascible determined um, uh, he floats in and out of several of the chapters mm. as the and kind of um, uh, bad fairy of... of, of, of and of the dispersal of the books c crops up again and again in sale catalogues. Dispersal so of the books comes as a big feature in right through in, into the chapters of Sidney Cockrell and yeah. Bill Green, yeah. both of whom acquired immensely from that. Um, he died in 1872. It was slightly complicated because the, 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 the estate was entailed so it meant that it required legislation to sell things but they began auctions from the collection um, at Sotheby's in the uh, early 1880s and it's rare now to get a, a single collection that is big enough that it fills an entire auction and it's very rare though it happens that a collection is so big an art collection is so big that it can spread over two or three sessions of an auction um, in the case of Phillips it took a hundred years and <coughs> I myself was first employed at Sotheby's in 1975 for the primary purpose of cataloguing Philip's manuscripts, which were still emerging from his estate. Oh, so it's one of the, I mean, it's the biggest imaginable. Dispersal. And have they, ha have they all been dispersed they, now? The, la the last sale was in 1977. Okay. So they've all gone. Yeah. Mm. Amazing. Um, I think we should pause there. And you've given us a great deal to think about and thank you very much indeed thank you Christopher de Hamel for your time and patience in introducing us to the posthumous papers of the manuscript club rich in anecdote bookish law and wonders I believe it will be irresistible to all bibliomanes it doesn't matter if you've never seen an illuminated manuscript anyone who's ever felt the need to possess a few rare books will find it fascinating and enjoy recognizing in others the frisson of possession or the desire to possess, or the fascination with rarity and beauty. It's available at £40, and I think we may hope that the author will sign some copies for us. Thank you, Christopher de Hamilton.